If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello all. Today, we have Sonia interviewing John about literary dependence and the synoptic problem. This is looking at the process by which the Gospel authors went about writing the Gospel books. Given that the Gospel books are so similar, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it raises the questions such as, do they copy each other? Are the similarities due to the divine inspiration from the Holy Spirit? What do the evangelical scholars say about this? Is there something wrong with their approach? John will be looking to answer these questions and more. We are continuing from the previous episode today. We hope you enjoy! So, number seven. Changes Matthew made to Mark or in Shabirali to their elevated picture of Jesus. So. Number seven, changes for reducing the distinction between Jesus and God. You know, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, we read in Mark ten seventeen to 18. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But when you read the parallel passage in Matthew, you will come across this. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good things shall I do so that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. You see the difference between those two passages? Yeah, the, the first one refers to God, and it seems that Jesus is implying that he himself is God, but that's gone in the other one. But isn't the, the second one based on a bad text? I think we talked about this before. Yes, it is. This, this, we'll get to that in a moment. The idea is that in Mark where Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. The idea is he, you shouldn't be calling me good because only God is good, which means I'm not God. But in fact, the passage doesn't mean that at all. He never denies being good, nor does he deny being God. It could just as well be taken, and I think it should be, is if you're going to ask somebody how to get eternal life, which only God has the authority to give, and you're asking a good teacher, why are you calling me good? God is the one who gives the answer to this. So are you realizing that by coming to me and calling me good in this matter, you are calling me God? Could just well, as that's, easily be that's taken how this. I would take it. That's how I would take it. Now, Shabir will say that, no, no. Really, he's trying to deny that he's God, and, and Matthew sees that. Matthew doesn't like that. He's trying to elevate the picture of Jesus, so he changes. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. To why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. To try to obscure what Jesus is saying there, implying he's not good and therefore not God. But as we've seen, the, the text in Mark doesn't need to be taken that way at all, so there'd be no need for Matthew to change it. And in point of fact, he didn't. If you read in New King James or King James Version or MEV or EMTV, you'll read in Matthew 19 the exact same thing you see in Mark 10. 
Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. It's exactly the same thing. And that's the reading you find in 99.1% of all the manuscripts. Only 0.9%, and again, the corrupted ones that have this alternate reading that you will find in the NASB, the NIV, uh, the ESV, and so on. So Shabir is perhaps confused by this, and he sees it as an attempt to elevate the picture of Jesus because he has gone along with what the evangelicals are saying about the critical text, the Nesson text being the best, which, as we've seen in our series on textual criticism, is not even close to correct. Either he has gone along or he knows that the evangelicals go along with that. Well, he knows the evangelicals go along with it, and that's probably why he goes along with it. He does accept liberal critical scholarship of the Bible, which all promotes this as the best text. But it's one more example, as we pointed out in our series on textual criticism, it's not a victimless crime. Here it's being used by a Muslim apologist to attack the picture of Jesus by using the wrong text. Now, the final one that Shabir has, the final changes Matthew made to Mark number 8, changes for covering up the human limitations of Jesus. And he goes to Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 14, Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, And we read this. After seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. The parallel passage in Matthew 21 says, Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. What's, what's the difference here? Mark has, for it was not the season for figs. So that, I guess, Shabir could interpret it as that makes Jesus look silly. Like, why should he expect a fig tree to have figs when it's not the season for figs? Exactly. And then that's gone in Matthew. Exactly, that would be the mindset that this makes Jesus look not good, not omniscient, maybe not even too bright, though Muslims would believe he's he's very bright. But it, it's a problem. If Jesus is deity, why would he make a mistake like that? That's a mistake for him to expect to find something when it's not the season for figs, and therefore Matthew removes that to hide Jesus' limitation here. Any problem with that? Well, to be honest, I'm not sure I understood what Jesus was doing here, but I assume he must have been trying to teach some kind of lesson. Well, indeed he was. But even if we take a step back and not even consider the deity of Christ, just from the point of view of of logic, we're talking about a person who lived his whole life in the Holy Land, who lived there, who was very familiar with, as all of them were, with the growing seasons, what grows when and where, any person living there would know that this is not the season for figs. Anybody. So why would Jesus look for something to eat when he knows it's not the season for figs? And you look a bit and you find out that, in point of fact, there should have been something there. This is something that happens in early April. W.M. Christie, Church of Scotland minister in Palestine under the British mandatory regime, wrote about this, and he was there. He was familiar with with 
growing seasons, and so on. And he writes this, The facts connected with the fig tree are these. Toward the end of March, the leaves begin to appear, and in about a week, the foliage coating is complete. Okay? So this, this is at this point now, because Jesus did find leaves on the tree. All right, Christy continues, Coincident with this, and sometimes even before, there appears quite a crop of small knobs, not the real figs, but a kind of early forerunner. They grow to the size of green almonds, in which condition they are eaten by peasants and others when hungry. When they come to their own indefinite maturity, they drop off. These precursors of the true fig are called taksh in Palestinian Arabic. Their appearance is a harbinger of the fully formed appearance of the true fig some six weeks later. So, as Mark says, the time for figs had not yet come. But if the leaves appear without any taksh, that is a sign that there will be no figs. Since Jesus found nothing but leaves, leaves without any taksh, he knew that it was an absolutely hopeless, fruitless fig tree, and he said as much. Well, okay then, so... In that case, what's the point of mentioning that it wasn't the season for figs? And also, if it's all, if if this already means that there will be no figs, then isn't Jesus saying, "Let no one eat fruit from you again"? Is that redundant? That means he didn't actually curse the fig tree if it was already fruitless. Well, he did curse the fig tree because when they see it the next day, the tree had withered. It's not going to be allowed to, to keep growing and growing leaves, but not bearing figs. And, and it was, as you said before, it was an object lesson because the fig tree, as it goes through in the Old Testament, the fig tree is often used as a metaphor for Israel. And so the message he's saying is, is look, you, you've had your chance. I'm here. You're rejecting me. You're not bearing the fruits that God wants from you. And you're not going to be allowed to just continue your merry old way. You either bear fruit for God or... It's curtains for you. And it's a point that he made elsewhere in, in the Upper Room Discourse, just before his crucifixion, where he said that every branch that does not bear good fruit is, is cut off and thrown into the fire. So it is indeed an object lesson that judgment has now come upon the people. You see in Matthew where he says, Oh, Israel, Israel, how, how often I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers its chicks on its wings, but you were not willing, therefore your house is left too desolate. It's an object lesson, giving the same point. The fruit that God wanted from them wasn't there. And so they, they will face then judgment and destruction. So, what do you think of Shabir's eight points? Any of them convincing? No. No. And let me point out the flip side. You know what You know what the logical fallacy of cherry-picking is, eh? Well, it seems like you, out of the whole pool of evidence, you, you pick one outlier that seems to support your point and ignore everything else. Yes, yeah, so it doesn't even necessarily have to be one outlier. It's, it's basically just pick the one the data points that show what you want. You're not taking a properly stratified, statistically significant sampling. You're just taking the points that give you what you want. How would that apply here? What would you think? I would think that if you really want to argue that Matthew is trying to elevate the picture of Jesus, compared to the picture Mark gives, you'd have to look at the flip side. Are there passages where Mark seems to give a bigger, higher picture of Jesus than Matthew does? Because if there are, Shabir's whole case collapses, doesn't it? Well, un unless it could be said that there are significantly more instances of an elevated picture in Matthew, but it seems like he 
can provide very few supposed examples anyway. Well, but the point is, he's saying Matthew is trying to elevate the picture of Jesus, and he has Mark in front of him, so you really shouldn't find any to the contrary. But let's look at a couple. And this one's interesting because this comes from a debate. And I don't know how extensive the debate was because the two appeared on camera in a show called Faith Under Fire with Lee Strobel. And it was Mike Licona against Shabir Ali. And the topic was, is Jesus God? It was from the year 2004. And Licona says, of course, Jesus is God. Shabir says that where in the Bible... Where in the New Testament does Jesus claim to be God? And Lacona strangely responds. He says, well, there, there are many, many places, but maybe Shabir means the, the, the passages that can be historically verified. It seems to be a rather big and unjustified concession to the opponents of Christianity to say, like, <laughs> we, we, we can't trust all the New Testament, all the parts that are quote-unquote historically verified. By, by liberal critical scholar scholarship methods. But he brings this one up from Mark 14. He reads, Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. But Shabir re- replies, he says, That's in Mark 14, 61 to 64. But in Matthew... He didn't actually affirm it. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But please join us for the next part tomorrow. Same time and same place. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.